Welcome to the Jay Morton Podcast. Hi and welcome to the final episode, episode 7 of the Jay Morton Podcast. Uh, incredibly, this is the last of our seven episodes. I hope you've enjoyed them as much as I've enjoyed speaking to the guests. But we're not finished. This is the final uh, episode and the subject is resilience. And we're joined by a very special guest, Kenton Cool. Kenton is a British uh, mountaineer and mountain guide uh, and he is known mostly for Summit in Everest 15 times and he's going to try it again next year to get 16 summits of Everest. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. But firstly, let us throw a big thank you out to our sponsors, Harley Davidson, for helping make this podcast happen. Uh, it's a brand I love, but also, in my opinion, one of the most reliable and resilient brands out there. From selling 20,000 motorcycles to the military during World War One and introducing graphic designs to stimulate low sales after the Great Depression, to training military mechanics during World War II, and earning four Army Navy Awards in wartime production. I didn't even know that. For a brand with such a huge heritage, they've managed to continually innovate to remain relevant and to maintain their position as industry leaders. You can check out all their latest lineup at your local dealer and you can find out where that is at hd.com so here's the final episode kent and cool whereabouts are you uh me uh hang on uh uh gloucestershire in the cotswolds oh, nice nice yeah so between oxford and simon tester yeah you had a, you had a busy morning or has it been uh, running children to school, trying to get my head round. Uh, we're trying to launch a new business at the moment to try to get my head around the finances, which don't stack up. Yeah. Um, and yeah, try, trying to pivot. I'm meant to be going down to Antarctica wow. in January via yeah. Cape Town. And of course, Boris has done <sighs> Boris has done a great job of of yeah putting that onto the red list, and it's only an eight day trip. So this is for some clients. It's only an eight-day mm-hmm. trip, and then they've got to do a 10-day quarantine. How does that work? And mm-hmm. can we go from Chile, which is actually only 50K further than where we want to go, but can we logistically get the plane there? And, and, and Yeah, so trying to so, sort all that shenanigans so, there. So what's the, what's the trip? Are you, are you flying via South Africa and then flying into Antarctic to yeah. do... Exactly. Uh, that. So we we got an unclimbed peak. So it's a mm-hmm. it's, it's quite a high end trip. We got an unclimbed peak uh, that I it, it's only like this. It's not a super technical one, but it's unclimbed, so it's pretty cool for the clients. Yeah. And then it's a bump down to the pole in the um, DC three. They've got a DC three is being converted to a Baslik. What's a so DT three? Is that the kind of twin prop? Exactly. The, the old yeah. transport plane that the Americans developed towards the, big the end of the silver thing, isn't it? Yeah, often. Yeah. yeah, often. There's still quite a few flying anyway. Some of those have been converted with turboprops. Right. Uh, and that's what they use down there with, uh, with skis. Um, so, yeah, we're not skiing to the pole or anything like that. Uh, yeah. We are we're doing it in locks. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're flying down there. Huge environmental footprint, I realize. Uh, put my hands up for that one. Uh, yeah. But I've never been there. I'm quite excited about going. Yeah, no, it sounds awesome. I'd love to visit either of the poles, to be honest. Oh, um, I'd like one. Yeah, it just seems to be one of those super expensive kind of, 
it's when you look at the cost of doing it, you're like, right, what else can I do with the, the cost that the money that I put to that trip? What else can I do with it that I'd equally get just as much satisfaction from? No, yeah, absolutely. It's bang for your buck. Yeah. And people often talk about how to get into mountaineering or how to, you know, how to get into climbing mm. and you know, should I go to the Himalayas? Should I go to the greater ranges? Well, in reality, if you're talking bang for your buck, go to the European Alps. Yeah. And in that sort of week or two weeks, say you go to Himalayas, it's going to be realistically three to four weeks, depending on what you're doing. And it's going to cost you X thousand dollars where you put that money to go into Chamonix or mm. Saspe or mm. even Zermatt. Mm. The amount of climbing you're going to get going, the amount of sort of time on the ground in crampons on the mountain compared with the Himalayas, in terms of bang for your buck, mm. you can't beat it. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you could say Scotland is quite is quite more accessible, but I mean, it's hard know. work. You got, you got to. Uh, if you're skiing, then you got to earn your turns. Uh, Scotland is fabulous. Well. Scotland's got little. They're little hills, but. It sounds like you're speaking from experience, Jay. Little hills, but they pack a punch. Yeah, uh, sure. You're going from sea level, uh, maritime weather system changes super quickly. You know, it could be bright sun shine in the car park, could be sleet and howling gales by halfway up, could be snow and clear on the tops, it could be torrential rain on the way down, short days in, in winter, navigation's got to be spot on. Yeah. They're hard. They yeah, cut yeah, your yeah. teeth in Scotland. Take that it's, anywhere. Yeah, it's one of the only places where you get the whole four weather systems in one day. And it could go, yeah, like you said, right, goes from extreme, one extreme to the other. And and you could get caught in a snowdrift or hmm. you it could be it, you could be going up in the rain and then coming back down in complete snow. Yeah. I, I do enjoy Scotland though. It kind of separates the uh the men separates, from boys. If, if we're allowed yeah. to say that, you know, the yeah. uh, the the women you, from the girls, the ladies from the yeah, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, do you sometimes pinch yourself? One minute you're picking the kids up from school, and the, and the next minute you fly out to Antarctica. Yeah, I mean it's um, it, it is a careful balance. Uh, it's certainly not a balance that I have right. Um, in so much that you know we all talk about work life balance, and I think anybody that says that they've got it nailed is either somewhat deluded or they're lying mm. to us because it's, you know, you're constantly reassessing where you are. You're constantly reassessing. You know, for me, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a balance between reassessing the investment, the meaningful investment I'm putting into the family uh, against paying the bills because mm-hmm. the mountains adventure for me, you know, a little bit like you, it pays the bills. So it's finding that balance between the two. And then there's a selfish aspect to it of, I feel that to be a better person, I need that sense of challenge. I need the sense of achievement. I need the space, which I get from the mountains, to readjust and to reset who I am. I I go a bit stir crazy uh, when I'm at home for too long. In lockdown was an interesting um, social experiment in the cool household. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, thank God we live in the countryside. I go out running and, and yeah, we've got an outdoor gym, et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I need the mountains. So it, it's finding that balance. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, you, but you're right. One minute you can be stood on the summit of Everest, it could be in Antarctica, it could be in Pakistan, 
And then with modern transportation, you can get from the top of Everest back home in 72 hours or mm. less. And that readjustment takes a little bit of time. Uh, I mean, you, hey, I mean, you probably know way more than me. You go from one environment to another mm. environment very quickly, and that readjust readjustment can be can be tricky, especially if, if you know the first environment held significant psychological or mental or physical hardship, and you drop back into home, and the children are like, ah, oh, daddy's back, you know, hugs, and you're trying to process with this still, and now you've got to deal with this at the time, same time and find the balance. Um, yeah, there's um, and there is that the, the high aspect of, you know, say for example something like Everest, you go away, you you put so much effort and commitment into it, you sacrifice, you know, most people six weeks, other people, you know, like yourself, you do it in, in a lot shorter time, but there's that whole journey aspect of it. You reach the summit, you you get on top of of Everest or whatever climb it is, and there's that, you know, that ecstasy moment of you know we achieved what we wanted to achieve. And I always found when, when I came back from an expedition, it was, and you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near as many as yourself, Kenton, but um, when you come back and you just slot back into that normal life, I always get a feeling of, you, you could almost call it depression, right? No, no, absolutely. It, it's just that. Yeah, you, you, you end up walking up the aisle of Tesco's or, or whatever your local supermarket is, and the ego in you or in me is going, hey, you know, I've just summoned the Everest or K2 or whatever it is. And everybody else is just walking past you as if it's an, a, an everyday Tuesday. And if you bump into a, a mate or something like that, it's like, hey, you're coming down the pub on Thursday or you know, I haven't seen you at hockey for a little while or what have you been doing? There's not that connection which you have or I have. You know, that experience which we just had is almost meaningless to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the amazing things with adventure. Adventure is what we want it to be, is what we make of it. And it's very personable. You can stick your tent up in your back garden if you live in London, or if you're lucky enough to have a back garden in London, but you know, on the, on the roof of your block of flats or whatever, that can be equally as meaningful to the individual as climbing Everest. The guy in the, in the supermarket that you meet still isn't going to be able to comprehend what it means to you because the venture is so personable. Mm. Um, and even when I was much younger, I lived in Sheffield, and you know, there was one specific pub called the, um, I forget what it's called now. Um, anyway, it's one pub we always used to go to. All the climbers would go to this pub. It's on the corner. Um, God. And anyway, everybody, and from time to time, people would be going away and doing these amazing expeditions or, you know, some of the world's best rock climbers would come in from time to time. And you, know, you see this complete melting pot of talent who would go away and be doing these groundbreaking things. And you come back and it's like, all right, mate, what's going on? You know, want a pint? You know, and it's, yeah, it, it's that, I mean, it's really weird. You know, it's, it's hard to process it. It's hard to put into words the complexities of, coming back from somewhere or doing something significant because it's only it's significant to us. Yeah. And it's, I, I kind of like it that way. I prefer it that way. I quite like that you have these people that are almost the unsung heroes that aren't chasing Instagram followers and likes and all that kind of things, but they're going away and they're doing what they, you know, they're doing what their passion is and in, in, you know, 
whether it's dangerous or whatever it means to them, and then they're coming back and they're just a normal person. Yeah. Um, have you, have you seen The Alpinist? Did you watch The Alpinist? Uh, no, I haven't seen it yet. I, I, I know all about it, uh, obviously. Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, Mark was a bit of a dark horse in our sport. Um, I mean, most, well, if, if listeners, viewers haven't seen it, it's about a, um, an alpinist who was renowned for his free solos. So that's climbing without ropes, climbing on his own, but climbing in an environment which has a lot of uncontrollables. If you're climbing in winter on snow on ice and mixed ground, the amount of, let's say, uncontrollables, loose rock, uh, you know, ice which isn't properly formed or not bonded to the rock face. You know, it's, a, it's a step up from uh, Alex Honnold with his you know, Oscar-winning documentary, Free Solo, mm-hmm. which is incredible as well. I mean, that's not going to be repeated for probably in our generation, if ever. The Free Solo, El Capitan, are you kidding me? It's but crazy. Capitan, yeah, but El Capitan is solid. It's not going to fall apart. It's not yeah. going to put on a loose rock. Mark was... Dry tooling, so that's just using ice axes. Yeah, I mean, as a climber, as a person that likes technicality of climbing, I dry tool, I ice climb, you know, I mix climb. I, 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 I can't get my head around that. And it's you know, bizarre, like, isn't it? It's, a, it's a dark horse that just yeah. went about because he needed that for himself and nobody else. He wasn't chasing sponsors. He wasn't ch- chasing the gram. He did it because he was in love with it. Um, and, and that's the beauty of it, though, isn't it? It's You almost want to dive into the psychology aspect of that more, but you can't, right? And you never will well, be able to. He's dead now, unfortunately. Yeah. Just, uh, and, you know, the odd yeah. thing is, you know, he died um, while climbing with a partner. Uh, yeah. Devil's thumb, I think. Um, you know, if there's not some irony there, on one hand, you know, free soloing on arguably the world's you know, most dangerous environment, and then, you know, again, he was trying a very hard climb. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, um, I kind of feel that I should have done some push-ups or something before. I mean, I could just see the top of your arms. They're like sort of mini guns, aren't they? I've, I've got, I've got, I've <laughs> my, got my, 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 my little weak arms. Look, <laughs> bits of string coming out from my t-shirt. I've got one of those cameras. I'm intimidated. I've got, I've got a um, uh, what do they call filter? I've got a muscle filter. <laughs> a gun filter. <laughs> um, oh, it's, it's. Do you wish? Do you wish, um, you know, because you've been a massive adventurer, do you wish more, you know, more people would experience, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, climbing Everest 15 times or or whatever, going to Antarctic, do you wish more people could experience adventure? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, we've already mentioned that adventure is a very personal thing. It could be Scotland, it could be the European Alps, it could be cycling, cycle touring around your local county, exploring footpaths. Uh, I mean, yes, I, uh, I, I think adventure is such a learning hub. It's such an environment for understanding who we are, um, understanding you know, all those little things, all those buzzwords at the moment, resilience or resource on this or teamwork, leadership. and all, you know. But more than anything else, I think adventure te- teaches us humility. Um, and it teaches us about our environment. I, I was, it was only today driving the children to school, and Saffron, my eldest, she's eleven. And there's, there's a, you know, the back lane. We, we, we're very lucky. We live in the Cotswolds, um, in the countryside, and we drive in a back lane, uh, single track back lane to school. 
And we did a litter pickup there two years ago. And it's filthy again. There's yeah, crazy. Costa Cup thingies, there's uh, McDonald's stuff, there's, I mean, it's, it's all. And, and she said, Daddy, why do people do that? You know, and it's a really good question. And a question I can't answer because I can't get into that mindset mm. why you would just hoik your rubbish out of the window of the car. I mean, there's vodka bottles. And, I mean, who drinks vodka in the car? I mean, just, <laughs> anyway, I think adventure, certainly adventure in the outside, of course, adventure could be indoors. I mean, there's all sorts of things. It teaches us about the environment. It teaches us what's actually important. And there's certain values which perhaps the next generation aren't getting from school. They're not getting from their peer group. They're perhaps not getting from their community. But adventure can teach us all of those things. You get out of your comfort zone. You experience new things. And what you bring back is a, a greater understanding of what's important. And right now, the biggest thing, I mean, it's on, it's on everybody's tongue after the debacle of COP26, is the environment and mm. the climate and what we have around us. And I think if everybody had their own adventure, whatever it is, uh, it, it could be anything. Um, and I think we'd be in a better place. I really do. I, I think there'll be a commonality between everybody. And you know, I know it's just a tiny thing, but I, I don't think we would see rubbish at the side of the road too much. I don't think we, you know, we, we, would, we would see so many misunderstandings about, you know, you know whatever. It just, oh, it, it pains me so much. And I think adventure, or just getting outside, is that portal. I, I think it's a, it, it's a classroom which is underutilized. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think with, you know, I've, I've moved into a city at the minute, but I was living in the countryside previously to this, and just outside of where I lived, you'd walk exactly the same. You'd walk down the the, the, the track. Um, it's a road. It's used as a, a through road. It's not that busy. And left and right is exactly the same, but it's it's exactly the same rubbish that you see every time, right? It's mm. it's cigarette packets, it's McDonald's, it's cans yeah. of Coke, cans of Pepsi, and you know you never see you never see uh, organic peanut butter jars, you never <laughs> see um, a salad bowl that's been thrown out, you no, never or, see yeah, or, or some expensive sourdough bread yeah yeah i know, yeah, I know exactly it's, what you mean it's, it's all the things that are that are bad for you right and it's it's that classic thing of people people probably not looking after themselves physically or mentally and that's you know it's like the classic saying of how we do anything is how we do everything it's you know they don't look after themselves mentally or physically and that results in them like looking not looking after the planet or the earth and it's the same with respect right they don't properly respect themselves and that means that they don't properly respect the planet. Um, and it's quite sad to see. Um, but no, I've got this thing that, you know, you know, there's all the issues with mental health and all, you know, that especially in, in males, you know, around our age um, with the suicide, the suicide rates. Um, I do feel like every time I go outside, and it, it might even be for, for a 30 minute walk or an hour, hour walk around, you know, the local countryside, it could be getting out into the countryside for prolonged walks. It could be anything, right? Just going for a swim in, in, in the ocean. Every time I do that, I, I feel better, like mentally, mm -hmm. physically. And I sometimes feel that 
with the mental health crisis, if people just went outside and just went for a walk, even just went and picked all that rubbish up, just got some cold exposure, did very small micro adventures or very small things that, you know, we probably wouldn't have this, this, you know, mental health pandemic that we do right now. I, 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 hey, I mean, everybody is different. I, I, I get that, but I think you're, I think what you're, you're saying has a huge dollar percent to it. Um, you know, I, I'm exactly the same. Now, I normally go for a daily run. I didn't run this morning, but I still got to walk the dog. So, mm. you know, walking the dog around one of the my, one of my run routes, and it's you know, hand on heart. You know, I live in the Cotswolds. It's beautiful. I'm very lucky. I realise that. But I think if I was living in a city, and I have done time in cities in Sheffield, in Leeds, in London, you know, I was always the same. I'd be out in the evening running the pavements, or if it, you know, I'd be up early in the morning. You know, walking to uni or walking to work or cycling to work. You know, I, I would do everything in my power to spend at least some time outdoors. Mm. And I think if we confine to you know, four walls, you know, for what, you know, it is going to send us a little bit stir crazy. And you know, if you're living in you know, South London, you may not have access to... You know, the outsiders I perhaps know it here in my you know, middle class privileged you know, situation, but we do have generally in most cities great parks. There are green spaces we can get to. But as I said, I used to pound the pavements. I didn't yeah. just go out running on the pavement, and that for me was enough. And it would be the reset that every morning I drop the children off, and then I spend at least forty five minutes walking the dog, running the dog, whatever, and before I sit down at my desk. Mm. And that for me is a Kickstarter. I do that, then I have my caffeine, <laughs> my coffee addiction, and then I crash into the day. Yeah. You remove that, you know, and I start getting anxious, and and that's, and that sounds crap, but I do. I start getting anxious, and that's just from the coffee. Uh, yeah. Anything else? Uh, it's the power of being outside, the power of being connected uh, to 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 nature, and also connected to one another. There's a fantastic book uh, by, um, uh, I forget what his name is now. It's all about addiction. You know, the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, it, and it's talking about the importance that we do have social interaction. We do have social networks. We have social connectivity beyond you know, this. Mm. That doesn't really count. Uh, and, and, it, and it's crucial. Uh, and you know, within that, I would also put the outdoors. Yeah. It's a total reset for me, without, with, you know, without a doubt. Yeah, same. I get, um, I can't stay indoors for too long. I get, I get really, like, I'm the same. Anxiety or, you know, I get, I'm the same. I, I get anxious if I stayed indoors. Like, I have to get up in the morning. I go for a walk, minimum, for an hour. And I have my coffee before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I can't wait. Um, but so yeah. all good things come to those who wait that's, that's what I tell myself like, okay true. I'm going to wait I'm going to wait it also helps reduce my caffeine intake yeah true how many are you on a day uh, you don't admit it to yourself yeah four I mean I try to cut off at lunchtime see man I've been stronger I've just figured out how to get yeah. decent coffee and make it so that it's strong. So instead of a double espresso, now I'm pretty much filling half the cup with, with espresso and then just topping it up with hot water. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, hey, I mean, I, I think, though, if you're going to have advice, that there's a lot there's a lot more out there. It's going to be more harmful. But, uh, and, I mean, there's, there's enough evidence to say that caffeine is pretty bad for us. I mean, it's, it's a stimulant. We all know that. But, uh, yeah. but there's a lot of, there's a lot of good literature about coffee. Yeah. No, where there is. And I was reading the book about sleep. Um, or listen to a podcast actually about sleep, and Matthew I didn't Walker. realize was that yeah, exactly. Matthew exactly. Walker, brilliant, yeah. isn't it? Brilliant. Yeah. And I was reading that about the heat dumping and and you know, the cold room, which you already knew. But the half life of coffee was mm. an eye opener, quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So I always used to have a coffee after dinner. You know, if I went out, I'm like, okay, let's cut that out. I mean, it was a five hour half life. Yeah. Caffeine in the body. Yeah, that, no, that was yeah. It's like eight, eight hours, isn't it? I think you might be right. It, 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 it was long enough for me to go, oh, yeah. so yeah, I try to have my last coffee you know, half twelve, and after that, yeah, I sometimes I sometimes sneak a three four pm in. Only yeah. if I'm only if I'm struggling and maybe I've got a workout to do in the evening, I'll sneak a th- three to four pm in. But yeah, I do feel the difference when I when I come to go to bed. Um, I actually because I, I, I can't work out in the evenings. I, I, I've got to be in the mornings. Working, yes. working out in the evenings that doesn't really work for me. Same, but I find I am wet. I've got way more energy and way more productive in the mornings. So if I've got a lot of, of work on and I need to get stuff done, then the yeah. workout can sometimes fall behind because I'll, I'll go out for the walk, come back, and then I know that if I sit behind the computer and do two hours, that's the same as doing probably four to six well, hours. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it, it, we sound so alike. I mean, I actually, I, I have work I do in the mornings and then I have work I do in the afternoons. Mm. And the work in the afternoon quite often is research, you know, stuff that I go down the black hole, the wormhole, Google, trying to work out, okay, we've got this statistical thing, we've got to, I need to research it mm-hmm. um, rather than what I would call, you know, class A productivity and the really important stuff. With Yeah, so I, I, I try to slew my, my work day a bit like that yeah I'm, I'm i'm very very same i'll i'll do because i don't generally watch tv um unless there's something really interesting on so in the evenings i'm generally yeah i'm, I'm looking at stuff online I'm, I'm doing the same and it's it's light work that doesn't require much much thought process it's yeah. but, 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 but it's time intensive or can be time intensive you go down that yeah. wormhole you read in articles you click through yeah, and, yeah. Do, you, do you ever go down the, the youtube wormhole and no, next minute, you're <laughs> trying to find, I don't know, new routes up, whatever it is. And then no. next minute, you're watching, I don't know. Someone's some, jumping off the old man of Hoy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or like, the, I don't know, testing new drugs on caterpillars or something in Russia. And you're just like, what the hell have I just, yeah, how did just I get got into? myself into? But, it, but it's interesting. I was, I was looking at I was looking at the algorithms. I was looking at the click-throughs on YouTube or listen to a podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm. And the, the way that you are deliberately taken down certain channels by YouTube and the algorithms and things like that. And yeah, you do pop up with you know, some Russian caterpillar eating and a radioactive material from Chernobyl or whatever it may be. You know, it, is, it is set that way. Um, scary. Yeah, did, you, did you see the, the social dilemma? No, not seeing that. No, no it's, it's um, worth, I mean it's worth watching, but it also kind of sends you into this uh, internal, this nihilistic, like the, the world's going to end, internal doom kind of 
uh, mindset. So yeah, just just watch it with an open mind. I'd say. Yeah, but but then I mean, if you look through history, you know that sort of thing keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, doomsday and you know, when people you know used to see comets or eclipses, you know, various societies back in the day would have their own sort of the end of the world is nice sort of mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, which oh would, look at look at the millennium. Well, yeah, there we go. Yeah, it, that that, that it, the infamous clock that every every yeah. electronic computer was going to malfunction. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that turned out to be true. God, I'd be all about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah bit, bit like COVID. Some people made a heap of cash out of that. Yeah, I know, right? Um, I know. I can't help. I can't help but think that um, every time I travel and I've got to buy buy two hundred pounds worth of test in that, you know, I spent thousands on test. I mean, I get it. I totally get it. But I spent thousands yeah yeah uh, and you know especially when you go you no know, we would spend you know, in the first instance it's like 200 pounds here for a pcr mm. test and i was lucky enough to travel to nepal this time last year you get exactly the same test or essentially the same test for 20 bucks yeah and they come to your hotel to test you yeah you know, um right just explain to me how that works it's huge i did, I did the same in bali um and then coming back into the country and you you pay for that five-day test you know the test to release but you don't get your test results back till yeah, day or something day nine or day eight yeah. which is like well uh so it's, it's a complete farce right yeah i mean it's just i mean I, I, clearly that we have a duty of care to the community and, things, and, I, and I totally get it yeah and i'm all over that at the same time <sighs> yeah uh, yeah anyway we see we, so, yeah we're going to the <laughs> Russian caterpillars. You've many millions of fans going, Jay, you bastard. Yeah, you can't talk about this. Um, but yeah. Let's talk, let's let's get let's bring it back to the mountains, Kenan. How, so obviously you are known for being so you you've climbed Everest more than so 50, 15 times is it? 15, now, 15 times. So that that equals with Dave Hart. It records in the mountains, I think, are fairly meaningless. Um, that's not what we do it for. Mm-hmm. However, if you were going to keep count, uh, 15 summits of Everest puts me level with Dave Hahn, the mm-hmm. lovely American dude, as the non-Sherpa record mm-hmm. for most number of summits. But then let's keep things into perspective, shall we? Kami Reed is on 24, mm-hmm. and in Appa and um, uh, oh, I forget what his name is now. It lives in, um, lives above Namchi. Is that the Sherpa? Yeah, not a Sherpa. They're on 22. Yeah. And there's a raft of Sherps on 17, yeah. 18, 19, 20. I work with a guy called Padawa. I can't even remember how many summits he's got. He yeah. said he was around 20. Yeah. I mean, I think shuffling up and down the same mountain 15 times. Is it that impressive? No, it's a good investment of time, maybe. But no, it's a poor investment of time. But it's a mountain that I love. You've been there. Yeah. You know what it's like. Um, can't help but go there and get caught in the um, I mean it's changing a lot these days but certainly in, in the earlier days to work with the Sherpa crews to work on that mountain to call that mountain essentially my office you know, I, I do still love it despite the changing environment that we see there uh, yeah, yeah it's um, it's, it, it's the same for me and it's you know I get asked quite a lot about Everest and you know how I feel about people that um, may not be fit enough or qualified enough to be on that mountain. And 
you know, it's a, I keep coming back to the same conclusion that no, no one really essentially owns that mountain, right? It's part of the earth. And anyone on the earth deserves a right to be on that mountain. If they've paid the money, if they've got mm-hmm. a legit, legitimate Sherpa, if they, you know, they think that they're worthy of being on that mountain, then, you know, they have all the right in the world to be on that mountain. Um, what, you know, bringing other people into, into that and bringing other people into danger is a completely different, different topic. Um, but, I, 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 you know, I think that Everest is still Everest. It is still the highest mountain in the world. It is still a beautiful mountain. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's one of the greatest experiences I've ever done. It's still one of the hardest things I've ever done too. And I think people think... It's interesting that you say that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, you know, people think that it's easy because all you've got to have is 50K in the bank to be able to (laughs) climb Everest. And it's like, if you think that that's all you need, then you're completely misguided. It takes, you know, it takes a, a lot of fucking effort to get up that mountain. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting that, that that what you say pretty much echoes mirrors what I've, what I've been saying for years. And one of the great things about mountaineering as a sport, there's no real rules or regulations. You know, if you want to go to Mont Blanc, uh, Everest, you know, whatever, you know, Grand Jurass in, you know, in in France, and throw yourself against the mountain or against the roots. That's entirely up to you. There's no committee to say otherwise. There's no, you don't need to be nominated or seconded to get into the club. It's not like the local golf club or tennis club. You know, climbing has, mountaineering has always been somewhat anarchistic. Um, And long may continue. Mm. Uh, At the same time, I think, as you rightly pointed out, people need to have an understanding that if they go to Everest, they shouldn't suck in predominantly our Sherpa friends to get them out the situation that they find themselves in. You know, they're mm-hmm. putting other people in danger. They're sometimes you know, putting other people in danger or often upsetting other people's own um, dreams and ambitions. You know, by you know, You're never going to walk past somebody that needs help. And as a professional mountain guide that I, that I am, it's, it's a real conundrum. I work in a very bespoke way. I work just with one client each year. And I, if I'm with that client, I come across somebody that's ill-prepared or has cut corners or perhaps doesn't have the experience to be there and is struggling, as a professional mountain guide, I have a duty of care. Mm-hmm. But my duty of care is to who? My client as a paying client or to the other person as a human being? Well, it's to both. So what do I do? Now, I'm normally lucky. I've got quite a big Sherpa team around me at all times. And generally, you know, one of those can peel off and try to deal with the situation. Or I might have to deal, peel off if it's beyond the remit or scope that Sherpa can deal with. But then what happens to my clients? Do we turn around? I mean, it's a real conundrum. Mm. And, you know, that's, you know, that, you know that, that, that is a real issue. Um, you know, of course, preservation of life is always going to be number one, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, I mean, I've had stand-up screaming matches on the Lotsy face. With you know, <laughs> one instance, there was an Indian girl that came back two years running. Actually, she was woefully yeah, um, underprepared. I don't know what team she was with, and uh, yeah, I found myself screaming at her. Mm. Uh, how dare she draw her sherpas? And you know, she's 
the Sherpas are trying to put her crampons on. One of them's fallen off. She can't put it on. And she's dropped a mitt. And this is at the bottom of the Loti face on a fine day. And I'm screaming at her and screaming at the Sherpas to turn around. Mm. Because the Sherpas are never going to say no because they're that sort of race of people. I mean, they're so lovely, so kind-hearted, so generous. Mm. And it gets them into trouble sometimes. Um, it's just like, oh. At the same time, it's a commercial environment which has you know, funded most of my professional life. Um, mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a real double-edged sword. I'm right in the middle of that commercialism. I like to think that I approach it in a very different way. I try to stay away from the circus as much as I can, but I'm very aware that it's there. Yeah, I'm very, when I, when I see, um, so you were definitely on Everest 2019. Yeah. Were you on on 2000? You would have been 2017, right? Yeah, 17, 18, 19. Yeah, I was completely aware of your movements on 19, not so much on 17, but I was watching in envy. <laughs> Are yeah, you 19 just... was Michael, Michael Lavelle. We got up and out. Uh, it was three weeks, was it? Yeah, two days after the fixing team. I yeah. think it's uh, Three days after the fixing team. But, but, that, that, but that's you know, a small team. You know, you know from your own military experience. Yeah. You know, a small team of A-class players are going to be far more effective than a bigger team. You know, even if that bigger team's got some really good players there, to a certain extent, they're going to have to you know work to the lower denominator. Mm. You go in there with a small team, you know, a really good, strong Sherpa team, a client that's been prepped for the last two, three years, which I always do. You know, you, you have this ability. You know, your logistics are relatively small. You can get them in place quickly, and I, I you know, I really do. I'm, I'm on the coattails of the fixing team every single time. Yeah. Get, you know, get in there, get up, get out, and then normally about four, five, six days, a week later, you get the, the circus storm that comes in of all the bigger teams, larger numbers. Uh, that's more often than not where you find the the lower denominator, i.e., okay, sweeping generalization. Um, and you know, I'm going to say sorry to my Chinese and Indian friends, but they are often Chinese and Indian clients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they come in, they, they look to, to summit the same time as everybody else because I think they feel that there is a modicum of safety in that. And if somebody else is making a decision in another team and they say, well, that's got to be right, so let's go. And, and, and that's where the shitstorm happens. Fingers crossed, by that time, I'm back in Kathmandu or... Or even back in the UK sometimes. Yeah, um, that um so I, I got stuck in a shitstorm in 2019 and luckily it wasn't. So we ended up on day two of the shitstorm. Day one was the really bad day. What, um, what day was that? Was that the 20 uh, I want to say 25th, maybe? Yeah. Um like somebody did see. Yeah, there was yeah, yeah. So so we actually tried to to sum it on the same same push that pushes you. Um but I actually got. I actually got you, ill at camp you, three. You were out there with with the HTS, H Yeah, HST. Yeah, Chris's Chris's team. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I actually got ill at camp three. I had the the, the shirts, the runs. So I turned the team back, and we we went back down to base camp. And um, I'm pretty sure that because there was an early summit window, right? And yeah. We we tried to push for that. Um, I think we had uh, the American girl that was. 
uh, she was an amputee. She had one leg. Pretty sure she had one leg. Oh yeah, because she was with Rob Gowler. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah American Rob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gowler. He, he he's a dude. Yeah, he is a dude. Yeah, yeah. I, I met him for the first time about I don't know two thousand and one. Yeah, maybe two thousand in America yeah. in the the Needles, like his rock climbing place. And um, yeah, our, our paths keep crossing from time to time. Uh, he's a good, he's a good dude, isn't he? Yeah, he's solid. Very good skier. Yeah. And very good at hacky sack as well. Uh, Is he? <laughs> <laughs> he was funny. I can't remember what he kept saying. There's a few things. Typical yeah. American. Yeah, he's very um, American, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm, I'm very fond of America. I'm very fond of Americans. Well, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, but but is up there. I like Gowler a lot. Yeah. And, and the girl, the girl that actually came across, she was on Cast Down's Pyramid when I right. was at Christy. I think she's called Christy. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I saw her again on Denali in 2000 and whenever it was, maybe mm. it was, I think 18 went to Denali um, with Rob. Yeah. yeah strong. Yeah. Strong. Did she? No, I think she got maybe 300 meters from the summit. Yeah. Um, so maybe before Hillary step that kind of area I can't you know we weren't up on the hill at the same time so I don't really I can't hand on heart say that I know exactly what happened uh, I think there's been um, a bit in the team yeah a bit of Sherpa team kind of um, from what we heard the fix that the rope there was heavy snowfall the day before I'm, I'm freestyling now I'm just trying to think if I can remember there was heavy snowfall which meant all the fixed lines had been buried um and yeah i think the sherpa i don't know i'm sure yeah I mean, it, it was it was one of those right that the tip that the you know the, the girl and robin that was saying one thing the sherpas are saying the other thing and it's, it's i mean it, it, it comes to that classic thing you know whenever you put a team together it's got to be open dialogue because mm-hmm. more often than not when things like that and you know, she she is an amazing lady and some mm-hmm. of the stuff she does is i mean her endurance levels are yeah. beyond comprehension but my understanding, I spoke only briefly to Rob about this, very long summit day. Um, and I don't think the Sherpas fully understood what, were, what they were embarking on. Yeah, that sounds um, like, yeah, that rings a bell. And, and, and I totally get their position. You know, they're, they're putting their lives on the line. Yeah. And um, a friend of mine was, I think it was the same year, 2019, I think it was 2019. Um, was working on Nat Geo project and they were trying to put a weather yeah, team. Yeah, we, we seen, yeah, saw yeah. them. Um, the your face team. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, I, I got chatting to quite a few of them. Few of the, yeah, uh, so Mark Fisher from Fisher Creative. Like, yeah. Uh, I know Mark super well. Mark and Ed. Anyway, they're trying to put this huge um, weather station on. I think they were meant to be humping it to the summit. Um, I think they stuck and, it at uh, the balcony. Yeah, they put it at the balcony in the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. And the Sherpas in the end said, no, we, we, we've had enough of this. Really? Yeah, we're pumping these big loads with part of that weather station. Mm-hmm. There was, I forget what the weight was. It was like 15 kilos. I mean, it wasn't a lightweight thing. And all of a sudden, the shirts are like, yeah, we've had enough. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, and they, turn, you know, they had to turn around. And I chatted at length to Mark about that. And it's sometimes our expectation of the Sherpas, we have to remember that they are human beings. Mm-hmm. They have the same fragilities that, that you and I do, you know, they bleed just like you and I, they get exhausted just like you and I, albeit. They are animals of the mountains. And I mean that in a really nice yeah. way. They're powerhouses. 
but they still have you know, a human trait. They're, they're human yeah. beings. It's crazy, isn't it? You know, some of the, you know, I've been quite lucky in terms of working with Mingma David. I don't know if you know yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's an absolute part. Like, I, I remember the first time, so 2017 on Everest, and we came down um, from Camp 4 to Camp 3, and he packed up the tent, ended up bringing all, you know, all the, the uh the empty ox- oxygen bottles like everything that was left over yeah and he's about he must be about five foot five five foot six yeah. he's a and, small and guy yeah small guy very yeah. small guy but his rucksack was you know like i'm talking his rucksack was at least a foot each side mm. of his his shoulders you know it was it was probably mid hamstring like midway down his legs it was coming out here with everything that he'd stacked under it it was probably you know if I was to take a guess, 40 kilograms. Yeah, no, but, but quite possibly more. It's coming down, those boys stack it. But what they don't want to do is do another boat. Go back. Like that. Yeah. They want to clear the camp out. Um, Phenomenal. Yeah, they, 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 he's he summited. He summited. Yeah. He was at the summit, and I'm looking at his oxygen. He's got on like 0.5, yeah. and the thing's not even on properly. It's just like sat here. Yeah. yeah they're, they're, they're machine. But, but he, you know, even the very best machine has <clears> it somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and there's, there's some a, that there's some that aren't machines as well. Yeah, there's and there's that, a bar, just about like let's say there's a vast yeah. between the, you know the world class. Yeah, and the not so well, and even the not so world class will run rings around me with their load carrying capacity. But you know they, they're human beings, and mm. uh, I think you know, one of the things that saddens me about Everest is there is this total expectation from some people that the Sherpas are merely bag carriers. Mm-hmm. to somebody else's lofty ambition to conquer the mountain. Uh, and that really saddens me because it yeah. is, you know, you're entering into a partnership. And yes, the Sherpa will go above and beyond for you. They will mm-hmm. do extreme feats of human endurance. They would lay their lives on the line for you. But occasionally, very occasionally, because they, yeah, they come from a yes culture. They would draw mm-hmm. the line in the sand and say, that's it. I've had enough. Yeah. And when yeah, they're legends. That, when they do that, I'm like, wow, if they said that, then they really mean it. And yeah. you can but honor that. Uh, yeah, they're just, they're beyond legends. I, I yeah. fail to find the words for them. Just, yeah. Yeah, they could be. You're smiling now. It just reminds me. Yeah. They do it with a smile. They got, you know, yeah. David would have like 40, 50, 60 kilos on his back, collapse at camp two, give him a mug of tea, and he's got this broad grin on his face. He's like, oh, yeah. Jay, bye. You know. Yeah. Plug, 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 and they do it all again the next day. That's the incredible thing. Yeah, I know. And even when you're even when you're resting at base camp, they're taking all the oxygen up, taking all the tents up, going up to camp four without oxygen, yeah. ditching all the kit, coming back down, going back up again. Yeah, I mean to, to, to give the listeners, viewers, an understanding, so that they will carry, or the, they, you know, the Sherpas will carry when they do an oxygen carry to the coal, they'll go from camp two, which is what six thousand four hundred meters to the South Coal, 8,000 meters. So that's 1,600 meters of vertical ascent. They're beginning to use oxygen now. Some of the bigger teams are beginning to uh, supply oxygen to the carries, but more often than not, they do it without oxygen. And they will carry anywhere between four and maybe seven cylinders. And a cylinder will weigh 4.4 kilos. And they will get up at, I don't know, like two o'clock in the morning from camp two and you might be sat at home thinking you know 1600 meters i can do that on a stairmaster yeah but now do it with 20 kilos on your back now do it at 8, 
Now do it eight with, hours with a straw in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And and they might do that two days running. Yeah. It is you now if the weather systems are such that they've only got a small weather window. Yeah, and they'll get back, some of them will get back down in the dark. And they might only have half a litre of water all day long. It is, I mean, that is yeah, just crazy human endurance feats. And even, even, even to the point that, you know, I was just thinking then, they obviously have the dial bar for breakfast and dinner, but you, you never, re- you rarely see them pull out a snack, right? No. I take so many bars and gels no. and electrolytes and And when you whatever. try to share it, they're like, no, 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 it's okay. Yeah. I'll go later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Incredible guide and so humble, uh, amazing integrity. Uh, there's a lot that I mean, a lot of us travel to Nepal, um, to climb mountains and to go trekking. And you know, we can learn a lot from the mountains, but I think we can also learn a lot from the local people. You know, no matter where that is, you know, it could be Bhutan, it could be you know, obviously, I'm in love with the mountains, Pakistan, India. Um, were you there when the, the earthquake hit? No, I transited it through a few days before. I, I didn't work the mountain 2014-15. I was working on a project in Bhutan, uh, mm-hmm. which ultimately collapsed. Uh, but, we're, yeah, we were trying to put together a business in Bhutan. And I just finished up in Bhutan, flew through Kathmandu, I'd say maybe three days before. Mm-hmm. Stopped off in Kathmandu for 24 hours, caught up with some friends, did a little bit of business, and then flew home. Uh, yeah, I just remember it vividly. An Indian friend of mine, she rung me up, said, Oh, Kenton, you know, hope all your friends are okay. Um, what do you mean? He said, Oh, check the news, check the news. And like, oh, shit. And then reports started coming in from base camp. Yeah, base camp's been destroyed, been an avalanche. And I remember my first, uh, so yeah, listeners don't know, 25th of April 2015, 7.8 on the Richter scale, I think it was. And the scale is logarithmic, so 7.8 is colossal. Um, uh, I think it's over 10,000 people lost their lives in Nepal. 18 people lost their lives at base camp. And when somebody says, oh, base camp's been destroyed by an avalanche, well, no, that's impossible. Um, and then you saw film footage. It's crazy, isn't it? You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. Just unreal. Yeah. Unreal. Um, we, um, yeah. I, I, I flew in just after it, probably about two weeks after it had hit. Um, and we went up to, so yeah, that we went up to Mustang, um, on a small not trip. Is it as beautiful yeah. as it says it? Yeah, stunning, really nice, um, like super clean, just a, a nice, clean place. Everyone's really respect, respectful. Um, there was a, there was a, a Nepalese army camp that, that ran mountain training up there. So we went up, spent a couple of nights with them, came back down and then walked the back end of the uh, Tr- Trongla Pass. Is it Trongla Pass? The big pass? Uh, Trongla Pass. In, is that into the Manuslu area? I can't, I'm not actually sure. But we, we ended up walking the back end of it. So it's, it's, a, it's a classic gradual incline up to about 5,000 metres and it just drops down from 5,000 to... Um, probably about a thousand meters in in a day, but we walked the back end of it through so we from a thousand up to, to five thousand, had a cup of tea, and then came back down. Um, yeah, yeah. So we, 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 yeah, remind me not to go for a walk with you. <laughs> but 
But um, we actually went there probably about six months later. We went to a place called Langtang. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that Langtang got properly hit. Wow. Yeah. A landslide came down and pretty much destroyed every house in the village. Literally, literally covered everything. And you, you could, so where where the track goes up through to, to Upper Langtang, uh, you go through the, the main town that just got completely covered in rock. Um, and they've almost carved like a little footpath out of the, you know, some some boulders down there that are the size of a small house. Um, but what was what was super interesting was that going up the valley, uh, and you've got Langtang on your left as you go up. On the right, um, where all the trees were, um, so obviously the earthquake happened, started a landslide, um, which you know all the, the rubble and rocks came down. But the winds afterwards pushed to the other side of the valley and completely destroyed all the trees for about 500 meters all the way down the valley. Jesus. Just flattened all these trees. Uh, the power of nature is it, it's sobering, humbling. Yeah, it's just when, when when nature shakes its shoulders, we all know about it. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the mountains are, are a big one for that, right? Yeah. Um, how was how was K two? You were there this year. Oh, it was awesome. Um, I first went to Pakistan as a young nineteen year old, mm-hmm. um, twenty eight years ago. I think I work out, uh, which made me feel a little bit old. <laughs> um, if it, Viewers, listeners are trying to do the mass on 48. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Pakistan was my first experience of the Greater Rangers. And then I went back there a few years later. Uh, and I was meant to go back there again in 96. Uh, but then I had quite a bad accident, so I couldn't get there. Um, I was meant to be trying the Ogre, which is on Chochoy Glacier. Mm-hmm. And ever since I was a young boy, I always wanted to go to Vascoli, uh, which is the roadhead for K2. And I wanted to go at the Bratora. Um, to get the opportunity to go this year was, was remarkable. And it was everything I hoped for. Mm. The start, have you been to Pakistan? Never, no. Have, I've, you, I've, have you been yeah, in Afghanistan? Have you been in Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's the same sort of, I don't quite know where you were in Afghanistan, but it's got the same sort of stark, brutal beauty to it. Mm. It's like, I don't do very well in the heat. I mean, it's, it's like, eye-wateringly hot, it's dried, arid. Um, you've got to trek. I mean, there's no tea houses on the trek. You've got to trek for bloody miles. You know, you have to stop for like a tea house lunch like you might do in um, uh, in Nepal. You know, I loved it. I absolutely, I love, everybody said to me, the trek's brutal. Uh, you're going to hate it. And partly because I've got smashed legs. Uh, I loved it. You know, it was hard work, but I loved it. I loved the changing scene. I loved the people. I mean, mm. the people are so generous and welcoming. It's such a new country. It only came into existence in 47 uh, with the partition of India. And they're so proud of their country. They just want to simply show it off. Mm-hmm. And what a country it is. Um, I mean, it's hard. Uh, and that's just getting to base camp. Then you've got to climb the bloody mountain. And now, I was there with a client. Um, I'd always said I would never guide K2 because I thought there was too many uncontrollables. Yeah, You've been on K2 before, though, Kenton. No, no, no. I signed up to go there years ago with Russell Bryce back in 2012, 13, something. Yeah. And there's just that gut feel about two weeks before I went. I said, no. I just Mm -hmm. walked away from (laughs) quite a lot of cash I put down for the trip like that. Um, 
And of course, this year, because of COVID, there weren't that many people there. Mm-hmm. So 20, put in perspective, 2019, which is the last time somebody climbed the K2, there was about 250 people trying to climb the mountain. You know, and that, that includes high altitude staff. So that's Sherpas, the local patrol, uh, uh, Balti high altitude porters, and clients. Um, compared with what can be close to a thousand on Everest, just to put it in perspective for um, people listening to this. On every uh, on K two this year we had seventy, wow, seventy people <clears throat> and, and high altitude stuff. Yeah, it's beautiful, absolutely yeah. beautiful. And probably those that were actually active on the mountains probably only fifty because another yeah. twenty on board peak first, and they never came across climbing wow. K two. So to get K two like that, the weather was perfect. Jay, the underfoot conditions were perfect. The whole thing just developed in the most convivial way I, I i joked i did a little stage tour recently i joked that we went there expecting to have to slay dragons and instead we found sheep uh, yeah. it was this monstrous beast just on her back having her tummy tickled until the very last day and as we were coming down from camp three all of a sudden she just showed her her ferocity yeah, stonefall, avalanches, wet slides. It was ugly, mm-hmm. know, scary and ugly. Um, but, you know, we, we happily summited. We got back down. We had a fantastic time. Uh, but at the same time, I'm telling myself, you've guided it, you've done it. Don't forget that last day. Don't get seduced by all the great stuff and forget about that one ugly day. It only mm-hmm. takes one stone. To end it all. Mm. Um, and for all the fantastic things about K2, it's a challenging route, it's steep, it's uncompromising, uh, it's interesting. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't you know, let you unlock her little secrets that easily. There was a great collaboration at base camp between the few teams that were there. Uh, it was just everything that you want in a mountain. Uh, and it scared me just enough for me not to be rushing back anytime soon. I'll be back to Pakistan. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Um, you know, maybe try a different route on K2. You know, maybe try something else. Something which is, because the amount of people that will be on that mountain next year mm. will just you know, elevate the risk. You know, there will be no tent space. People will be kicking rocks. I mean, it's impossible not to kick rocks off on that mountain. Um, there were rocks crashing through our tent, uh, luckily when we weren't there, but rockfall is a big danger on that hill. And if you have 200 plus people, uh, it becomes that much scarier. Uh, is, that, is that because of the steepness of it? It's just at a good the trajectory. Steepness and also the rock. The rock quality is not great. Um, you climb up through the Black Pyramid uh, and, yeah, and it's relatively steep rock. Um, I don't quite know what the rock type is, but it's, it's been heavily metamorphosed. Uh, it's like shaly. It's a little bit like the Matterhorn. It's like sort of stacked. I don't know if you climb the Matterhorn, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's kind of like shaly stacked, almost like a nice. Um, yeah, I've seen it. Big gaps the, in it and kind of loose sections. And... You, know, you, you get rocks stuck between your crown pond spikes. It's, it's impossible not to kick stuff off. So it needs to be frozen, um, but then you've got to be careful of the sun coming up. Because the Abruzzi Ridge does catch a lot of sun, so mm-hmm. you get the, the the free thaw cycles, and rocks can just release on their own. 
even pulling a rope sometimes, as you know, a you know, rope can just flick rocks. Yeah. Um, it was beautiful, though. I loved it. I loved ev- it. It was everything I'd hoped for. It really was. Yeah, K2's on a... Yeah, I think the last two years I've been so itching to go and do K2 and this probably this last year, I don't know why, but I just kind of asked myself in my head, like, like why? Like, what are the reasons that you want to go there for? And I was like, I don't know, because I just wanted to... I, I, I'd done Everest twice and I was just, you know, I'd done some other... I'd you know, been on Manaslu twice. I'd done some other... Yeah, I was on some smaller, smaller peaks around the Himalayas, and I was just like, I just want to go. I don't know. There's, it's hard to actually put a button on an excuse of why you want to go. It just felt like the right thing to do up until I don't know. This year, I'm like, do I really want to go? Like, do I want to take the risk of, of well? I mean, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be the harbour of bad news, but but I think this was the year to go. Yeah, just because uh, of the amount of people that, that were on the mountain. Amount people, because that think, mountain's only going to get busier, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, we're going to see a migration of, of a certain sack of people from yeah. Everest, I think, you know, thinking about what next and, and, and go to K2. You know, the, the Sherpa success in winter is only going to uh, mm. elevate its standing. You know, the success in 2019, there's quite a lot of success in 2019. Big success this year. Uh, over 50 people stood on the summit mm. this year. Um, you know, that sends out a certain message and not everybody realizes the hard work, the danger, the logistics it takes to put that in place. Um, I can't wait to go back to Pakistan. Um, I won't be rushing back to, uh, well, I won't be rushing back to the Brutzi, put it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm loosely thinking about Nanga Parbat for next year. Mm-hmm. Um, Beautiful looking mountain. I'd you know, love to go there. Yeah. Standing on the shoulder of K2, looking out across the Calcorn range, it's so pointy. There are so many layers of beautiful mountains, many of which nobody has ever climbed, many of which you know, are below 8,000 meters, below 7,000 meters. I'd love to be in a, in a situation where I could legitimately close the front door from the family and go there knowing I was going there for the right reasons. But more often than not, it's work for me. I need to justify it. When I close the front door, it's how is this, how is what I'm about to do going to help the greater thing that is team cool? Two children, myself, the wife, the dog. Um, and it's got to be justifiable. And I really hope that one day, very soon, I get in that situation and I can go to Pakistan for me to explore, to see what's around the corner, to go to the Ogre and the mountain I never got to, to go up the Chok Choy. It's just, there's mountains, mountain ranges, and then there's a Karakorn. And its stark beauty is seducing and mesmerizing. God, it's beautiful. It's unreal. Yeah, but I can only imagine. I can only imagine. It's bloody marvelous. It's hard work. Yeah. Because uh, the logistics aren't so tight as Nepal. In Nepal, you're probably in the same situation. You can make a telephone call. Yeah. And you can get logistics wherever it's sorted. Yeah. Now, even when you're in country, you're, you're having to pivot and fight and go this way and that way and, and you're bartering and you're bribing. And I love all that stuff. Yeah, I love it all. And then the kit doesn't turn up or the bloody 
you know, donkeys have stopped two hours down there for whatever reason. You're like, guys, we've got no tent. And, you know, it's just like, what are we going to do? And I love that. Yeah. Aspect of it. Uh, I love the adventure and, it gives you. And that's what it would have been, right? That's what it would have started off as. That That is like an expedition by the meaning of expedition. It's just become commercialized now and just easily accessible for everyone else. Yeah, but, but, but Pakistan is still still loose. Still there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The cow court, you know, cow court, the Botora, you know, K2, G1, G2, the big peaks. You know, the, the local outfits are getting their stuff together on that. But you go mm. out of the way. I mean, my first trip was to the Noltar Valley, north of Gilgit. Uh, we had no cook. Um, we had like five packets of biscuits for five weeks. <laughs> uh, that was the luxury food. No, I was 19. You know, we made all, you know, we went to the market ourselves and bought all the food. You know, how much carbohydrate do we need per day? Oh, I don't know, 100 grams of this. And, uh, okay, how much did, you get it, did you get it right? Did you get yeah, it right? Or... Yeah, 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 the yeah. first two days picking all the rat, rat poo poo out the rice when we bought the cheap rice. It was like, yeah. this rice is like 100 rupees. Oh, yeah. This rice is 150 rupees. This rice is 200 rupees. Well, it all looks the same. Let's just get the cheap rice. Yeah. Uh, and, and and that's where the experience comes from. That's where the teeth are cut. That's that's what you that's when the shit hits the fan, that's what you lean back on. Mm-hmm. You, know, you lean back on those moments where you know, as you know, you're probably very aware of him, David Goggins. You know, that's mm. what David Goggins would say. That's a deposit into the cookie jar. And then when you need it, you can put your hand in and you can pick it out. Uh, it's. I love Pakistan. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, I used to love that aspect of being being in the military. Um, and you know, it's I don't know, like as contentious as as contentious as it is, like there's something something like be- not beautiful, but there's there's something peaceful about war. Um, and it it comes back to, I guess you know the the internal adventure and. In, in most people that went and joined the army and it's it's you know you talking then about pakistan just re- reminds me of you know b- being you know, i can't talk about much but being in certain countries just on your own or with with a small team and just yeah having to buy food for yourself and yeah it's um i don't know i kind of I, I, I live for those moments but they're getting few and far between i don't know the more i don't know the older you get or the, the more i don't know i don't know well, I think the older we get, you know, the, the more we slip into a more comfortable way of life. Certainly for yeah. me, you know, I hold my hand up and do that. And the other thing which makes a huge I do, I do, I do, but I, I try not. I try not to admit it to myself, Kent. I find it hard to go, Jay. You were in the special forces. You're not anymore. <laughs> well, that that and th- you know, th- things change. Priorities change. And I, I was doing because I got my own podcast. And I was doing a. I was interviewing. Um, uh, 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 Simon Yates and um, Joe Simpson. So, so I was in, yeah. interviewing Joe. This is only last year, and he said that he went to the mountains thinking that he wanted to be like Messner. He wanted to be like Walter Benatti. You know, he wanted to be this amazing superstar climber. But actually, when he when he started doing it, and the fear and being scared and the technicalities of the climb. The exhaustion, the you know, lack of sleep, you know, not eating properly. After two or three trips like that, he held his hand up and go, 
actually, I thought that's what I wanted, but it's not. And over time, I've come to that same conclusion. When I was younger, I used to do all that sort of stuff. Mm. No, we were 10 days on Annapurna 3 back in 2003. Pushed us mentally, physically. We went out of gas, went out of food. You know, thought John was going to die. All that sort of stuff. I continued doing it for a few years after that. And it grinds you down. And I think there's only a very few people out there that have that mental fortitude that they can keep doing it. Uh, and, you know, I'm not one of them. You know, mm. I did it for a bit. And then when I was brutally honest with myself, I thought, I don't want to do it anymore. I, I, it's, it's type two fun, isn't it? It's not even type two fun. It's like, it's so way down the line. Yeah. It's like you're in tears. You're, you know, it pushes you beyond, and you know this more than any of us, it pushes you beyond anything you think you are capable of. Mm. And then you have to try to reintegrate. Now, Annapurna 3 it broke relationships, you know, it, it, it broke people, it, 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 it was sublime and it's, and it's molded me to who I am today in many ways. And it was so good to see only last week it received uh, an ascent. It's the first time it's been ascended since we climbed it back in 2003, albeit even by even harder route than, than we climbed. Um, and it brought back all the memories. Now, sitting on the, you know, in a boulder field in the dark with a full bag, we call full bags picks, that weighs like 50 kilos. Um, seeing Johnny Varco just go up and walk away without saying a word. Having, you know, I just fallen down a slope and the connection between us just being broken. Um, very proud of what we did. But I, I, for one, don't have that mental fortitude. I, I can't do that year after year after year after year. I thought I wanted to do that, mm. but I can't. You know, and we grow up. Things change. Priorities change. Children come along. Marriage comes along. You know, better, better halves. You know, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever it is. And those of us who are perhaps in denial will shun that and try to keep going down the line that they, or we have always done. And those of us who are perhaps a little bit brave will put our hands on our hearts and say, that's not us anymore. We've moved on. We've changed. And we have dependencies elsewhere now. Um, and that took me a long time to come to terms with. And it's to search now, it's still grappling with them. You and your cohort from your army days, you know, probably by a magnitude of 100, um, trying to compartmentalize everything and where you are now to where you were and, and where you're going to be. Um, and invariably we're doing it on our own. Yeah, I think um, I think definitely for me, um, yeah, I'm, I'm. It's yeah, I, I don't have as much interest in interest in or interest in um, being sleep deprived as much as I used to when I was younger. That's definitely the. You, uh, you had an interest in it. <laughs> I mean, you could do a day and not feel it, but now I do. You know, I get seven hours instead of eight, and I'm a grumpy, grumpy uh, person. Yeah, but I, I don't know. For me, I think you get wise to it, and I think you get, I think you finally realise that you can go away and do something for a day and just get the same enjoyment that you would have back then for a six week or a four week expedition. And you know, 
I know now that I have certain things that I do, whether it's activities or sports or whatever, that are going to give me just as much enjoyment as and less pain, suffering, um, more sleep, better health, um, all that kind of stuff than if I was to go away and do some, you know, whether it was something in the military or or whatever that I, I used to enjoy doing. Mm. But like I say, I mean, we, we joke about type two fun. You know, do we actually enjoy it in the moment? There's probably part of you. I don't know. You never, you never remember how much you moaned because you do. I don't know. Military, like in the, especially in the special forces, got, pro, lads are proper moaners because we, I don't know, a lot of prima donnas and people that think we should be trapped better. And next minute, you're, I don't know, in the middle of Oman with eating rations for the six week run in and yeah, not out of shower. Yeah, and I'm, I'm guessing your rations, you know, they don't take a long time to cook. I mean, one of, one of the lovely things on expeditions, if you're not on the hill, you know, the meal time is, is coming together. You know, yeah. You're cooking the meals, you've got to prepare the meals, but certainly when I've been in Greenland and things like that, you know, we did four weeks in Greenland, just four in the bags. From the moment of, oh, let's have supper to, oh, we've eaten supper, 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah. okay, well, <laughs> what do we do for the next 23 hours until we do that again? Um, yeah, it, it's amazing the... Like that's the the joy of food preparation, not just the physical act. And I, I guess you spend six weeks in Mar in, in, in the sand. And I, I hate sand, by the way. It's, it's my like never yeah. don't like sand at all. Um, yeah, yeah, not me. What's next, Kenton? Well, hopefully Antarctica, but we'll wait and see. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe going down to Antarctica. Back to Everest next year. Ding, ding, round 16. Yeah. Uh, got a beautiful client, uh, an, an English girl living out in Long Beach. Um, not much mountain experience. And mm-hmm. COVID's been a real hiccup on that uh, to try to get her up to speed and experience. But, you know, she's a grafter. She's a um, fast learner, super inquisitive. Want to go back to Pakistan uh, badly. Um, and then launching a new company. Uh, we're launching a company called Incool Company, <laughs> ICC. Uh, and it's going to be a blend of some leadership and coaching. Um, getting awesome. people out of comfort zones in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah, my, my wife's an exec coach. That's quite a lot of mentorship. So quite, quite high-end um, clientele. So we're busy launching that. And in in the mountains, sorry, Kenton? In, is no? that in the, in, in the mountain-based training, is it? Yeah, yeah, it will be a little bit. So it's going to be sort of multi-level um, individuals, organisations, but you can, you know, you've got to be realistic that not everybody can put a week aside and you know, go to a retreat in a Dolomite, say, to get outside a comfort zone, to pick apart what they're doing, to you know, look at their mental, physical, you know, nutritional well-being. So it, it, that, that's all packaged together. And then on a personal side of things, you know, I'm working on a couple of projects in Pakistan that I want to get up and running. Um, yeah, I've fallen back in love with Pakistan, uh, as you may have guessed. Um, I'm working with one or two companies out there in the ministry to try to boost tourism. Um, and then, yeah, just trying to be a great husband, an even better father, um, and look after myself. You know, I'm 48. You know, the knees are beginning to creak. Uh, the hips are beginning to ache when I get out of bed in the morning. And 
you know, you've got to invest time into that. You know, it's yeah. not a spring chicken anymore. And I want to keep doing what I'm doing. So got to look after the engine a little bit. So it's been um thanks again for for, for coming on and it's been been great to, to to chat and to meet you as well. Hopefully we can catch up soon on a mountain or for a beer or wherever. Well, a beer on the mountain. There we go. It ticks all the boxes. Sure. Uh, yeah, or a boil in the bag. Yeah, well, yeah, let's try and back. But yeah, I mean, I, I know we've got a lot of mutual friends. Um, you know, it would be good to get some of those uh, some of those cats together and, and actually meet you in person for once. You know, I think I've passed through this from time to time. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've got mutual friends. So I appreciate your time, your energy and what you do. Keep doing it. Keep it real. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on the hillside soon. Yeah, likewise, Canton. Appreciate you and uh, stay safe and enjoy the Antarctic. Well, that brings us to the end of my first ever podcast series. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hope you found it useful, insightful and inspiring. Finally, let's give a massive thank you to our sponsors, Harley Davidson, for making this possible. I'll be embarking on a new journey with them very soon on their new Pan America adventure motorcycle. So please give them a follow on Twitter at Harley underscore UKI or Instagram at Harley Davidson underscore UK to share their experience. Thanks to our sponsors, Harley Davidson, who have helped make this latest adventure possible. Check them out at Harley slash Davidson.com or give at Harley underscore UKI a follow on Twitter. Thank you.